be in Mark, who'd have thought, right? Uh, Mark chapter 11, and uh, we're going to pick it up there. Uh, I forgot to print out my sermon, so if I seem delayed a little bit, I'm not used to using uh, the iPad to do it. I've done it once before, but I tried it one time. I was like, well, I see all these guys doing it. It seems like they think it's easier, but it's not easier to me. Like, I like it on paper for whatever reason it is. I don't, I don't know what that's about. So, I'm still old. I'm, I'm actually old enough to remember when I used to have to actually write a sermon, not just type a sermon. But I was glad to type them because that was a whole lot easier than writing. So, so we're going to pick up right where we left off. Mark chapter 11. Uh, if you want to turn there right now, we're going to start at verse 15. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can use your digital Bible, your phone, whatever else that is that you have. That would be fine, but everybody needs some sort of word from the Lord or or the Bible in their hands so that they can know the word of God, but we're going to pick right up there. We followed um, Jesus into Jerusalem last week and uh, and then back into Bethany uh, where as he was leaving, he saw the fig tree and he cursed the fig tree. That's what we spoke about last week. We all witnessed it. We all saw it, right? Remember we talk about when we step into this gospel, when we step into reading it, uh, like any book, we are there. My kids love to read books. I mean, when I say love to read books, they will like devour a book within like two days, like a 500-page book in two days. They love uh, reading books. And why? Because they find themselves as part of the story. They're right in there with him. And so when I say we saw it, we witnessed it. We saw Jesus curse the fig tree. We saw him do it. We heard what he said. We looked deep within it uh, so that we could see what he was teaching through it and what we could learn from the things that he was doing. And we're, we're, we're going to get there some more about because there's some more things that he's going to teach. But first, we're going to follow Jesus this morning right back into Jerusalem and more importantly or more specifically back into the temple. So we pick this up uh, in Mark 11, uh, verses 15, and we're going to read to 25. Are we there? Say amen. All right. All right. When they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, The scriptures declare, My temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. When uh, uh, when the leading priests and teachers of religious law heard what Jesus had done, they began planning how to kill him. But they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teachings. That evening, Jesus and the disciples left the city. The next morning, as they passed by the fig tree he had cursed, the disciples noticed it had withered from the roots up. Peter remembered what Jesus had said to the tree on the previous day and exclaimed, Look, Rabbi, the fig tree you cursed has withered and died. Then Jesus said to the disciples, Have faith in God. I tell you the truth, you can say to this mountain, May you be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and it will happen. But you must really believe it it will happen and have no doubt in your heart. I tell you, you can pray for anything. And if you believe that you've received it, it will be yours. But when you are praying, 
First forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. Now, there's a lot there. There's a lot there. Uh, and really, I'm going to unpack this really in two parts. I'm going to deal with two things. Uh, the main one being Jesus' issue with the temple. And then we're going to follow up with that fig tree discussion from last week as it moves us back into a new kind of discussion with it. So I'm going to separate this in two parts. This is a context. This is a single day in the life of Jesus. The apostles walking with them uh, and what they witnessed, what they saw, they recorded for Jesus's words here. So as soon as he arrived in Jerusalem, he walks in the temple. He's already driving people out. I mean, as soon as he steps in there, he's pushing them out. And this is a side of Jesus that we don't see very often. I mean, think about it. We rarely see him angry. We rarely see Jesus lose his composure a little bit. We often think about Jesus as loving and he's forgiving and he's graceful and he is all those things. But really, we rarely like picture mad Jesus. That picture's never on the wall. You ever notice that? Like it's always Jesus and he's happy and his arms are open and he's ready to receive you. It's never Jesus with the whip, right? right? We, don't, we don't have that view. But here's the thing is, this is, aren't you a little bit curious at what it is? That, that could anger Jesus to such a point of taking actions like this towards certain individuals in the temple? I mean, at some point, we, it kind of begs the question, like, what makes Jesus angry? What could make him so angry that this is what he decides to do? And, and while this might be the first time we talk about it here in Mark, this isn't the first time it's happened. It's not. It's happened once before right after Jesus performed the miracle of turning water into wine at Cana. Matter of fact, if you go and, and, and read in John chapter 2, as soon as he's done with that miracle, the next day he's moving into the temple to do the same thing. I'll, I'm going to go there for you, but John 2, 13 through 17, it was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, so Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and cattle and scattered the money changers, coins over the floor, and turned over their tables. Then going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And then his disciples remembered the prophecy from the scriptures passion for God's house will consume me. What kind of angry do you have to be to think about, I'm going to take these ropes, I'm going to braid these things real quick or something, and I'm about to whip some folks. I don't even know who these people are. By the way, all guys size each other up. And I don't even think, I think he was so angry, he didn't size anything. I'm about to go in here, I'm about to whip everything in here. I mean, this is a different side of Jesus. This is a different side. We don't see this of Jesus very often. We've been reading through this the entire time. Uh, come on. You, how many times do you ever count when Jesus is angry? <laughs> it's few and far between. It, it's very few and far between. So this is a good discussion to be in, right? This is, this is Jesus, right? This is not anybody else. Uh, like it says, passion for God's house consumes him. And by the way, if it consumes Jesus, it should consume you. Lesson number one right there, right? That should consume you. If he's this passionate about his house and his temple and the things that are going in it, um, that's a, that should be a light passion for you. If you're, if you're kindred to Jesus, if you're praying with Jesus and abiding in Jesus, these are things that would anger you. 
the, the, to follow that train of thought just away from the notes real quick, if only twice we see Jesus angry and the only things he's angry about are the things that keep people from him, maybe we, sh- we struggle a whole lot more with anger issues about really things that don't matter. That's a whole other sermon. So Jesus cleansed the temple both near the beginning and near the end of his public ministry. His passion uh, for the purity of God's house and his rejections for the things that defile God's house, they're at the forefront and they're at the end. All right? It's kind of sandwiched in between are all the good works, right? So what, what was it that they were really doing inside the temple? I mean, really, what, what were they doing that was so bad that it would provoke what would seem to be this gentle, caring, and loving man into anger or a rebuke? That, that's really the question of the whole thing. You, you should really drive into that, right? So, so if you really look at, if we dived into that, it would be we would look back to the Old Testament, right? We would, we would uh, uh, if you look at the Old Testament and kind of move forward, it was the law of Moses, right? That during the Passover, the Jewish people were to sacrifice for repentance of their sins to the Lord. This required killing a few specific animals. And since many of the Jewish people came from long distances, it became really impractical for them to carry their sacrificial animal. Think about it. If I've got to come a a long distance, food might be scarce, water might be scarce. These things that are small like a lamb or, or, or things like that, they might not be able to make that journey. And so from the need sprouted a business of providing sacrificial animals for a small price. And while this isn't, this isn't inherently evil, all right? I mean, you're offering a benefit for those who need it. And it, it, that's not inherently evil. However, money, or maybe the lust for it, has a way of creating opportunity for sin. That's really the best way to, to, to look at that. It's not money in and of itself that's sinful. It's the lust of it, the desire for more of it that creates the opportunity for it. And so this whole, uh, think about this whole scene for a minute. There were money changers in the temple that were exchanging currencies back and forth. If you came with a foreign currency, it might need to be exchanged into the common currency there. And so you had money exchangers in there so they could make these purchases back and forth. Then you had some different vendors. You know, you go to one section of it, right? And there are uh, uh, people there that are, some are selling doves, some are selling lambs and so forth, right? And you, different ones and these different vendors and they're selling them for maybe different money. it, it, It gave opportunity actually for extorting these travelers for more money than maybe the animal was worth or extorting the poor and all at the expense of human life and really human soul and ultimately the worship of God. I mean, think about this. They were sitting in the middle going, you can't get forgiveness unless you buy what we have. Listen, this isn't new either. This pops up in church history again. All right. Years and years and years later to the church, we kind of know today. All right. Services scheduled, the hierarchy of pastoral leadership, the, the world we know today in church history. Go back and look. Catholicism for the longest time used to make people pay for penitence. So you bought forgiveness from the priest. This is what. Listen, guys, 
Martin Luther never wanted to leave the Catholic Church. But when he saw this and he had read the Bible and saw justification by faith, he could not understand for the life of him where they came up with this idea that the priest could forgive and it could charge you money for it. And so when he, this, this is the actual stuff that, that spawned off. Passion for God's house is what spawned Protestant, uh, Protestants. The same very type of stuff that Jesus is dealing with is what spawned off the separation from the Catholicism and everybody else. This is not new. Not new stuff. The whole Protestant movement is built upon it. So how does this all apply today? And listen, that's, the, that's really the question I've been kind of asking myself. And if, if I'm going to be honest, I'm kind of disgruntled by the whole Christian industry. You know, I've, I, for my part to play in it... Um, Early on, when I got saved, I was part of a, a lot of music and stuff. And my wife will tell you, and, and we, we were a part of a Christian band where we went around a lot of places. And I've been on the Daystar Network and, and you know, played on TV. I, I played on radio. Uh, I, I, have, I have got to see a whole side of Christian industry um, that, honestly, make you sick to your stomach in some cases, right? So I, I'm a little bit disgruntled, but I'm, I'm going to try to keep it. Uh, I'll let you know when things are my opinion. How about that? Uh, so don't get me wrong. I can appreciate um, the Christian marketplace or the Christian industry or whatever you want to call it. Uh, I can appreciate having things that represent my view, right? Totally like wearing a T-shirt. That thing's awesome. You know, that says something about Jesus. I totally can appreciate that. I can appreciate other books or I can appreciate things, paintings and, and, and creative works that represent what I believe. All right? And I think there's a place for those things, right? Uh, my struggle lies in where is the line. And I honestly think that's something you're going to have to flesh out because uh, it's tough for me to navigate uh, uh, through all of that and for me to see kind of through all of that. It just is, right? Outside the church, and here's really kind of where we get into like, I'm going to tell you, it's like these are some of the things that I see issues with. And I'm just saying this, these aren't like the lay down the law because I, I don't think there's a place where we can. I think Jesus sees the heart of the people inside the temple and Jesus makes that call. But these are areas where I see where we should be watching. Let's just say it like that. Right outside the church, it's easy for me to get on board with something like Mardell's. It's not in the church. It's not hindering me from coming to the Lord. It's not. It provides creative works for those who love Jesus, a place for those who love Jesus to share their creativeness about Jesus, and and I think that's awesome. And, it, and if there's books in there that help me grow closer, there's all these things right that help uh, uh, that build me up, so to speak, right, that, and encourage me in those. I have nothing against that. It's um. I'm all for that, right? Uh, it's, however, it's hard for me to see churches who sell like books inside the church or coffee inside the church or really anything else inside the church. And maybe it's because uh, of this. And I'm just going to be honest because tithe money is paying for all of it. And it seems like a secondhand dip into the offering plate to me. I'm going to take tithe money that's coming in from the church, buy things with that to sell them right back so they'll spend more money than just their tithe money. That seems rough to me. I'm not saying it's wrong because I don't know the heart behind some of all that stuff. I'm not saying there's a biblical precedence where all of a sudden this is evil and this is bad. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that's, hard, that's a hard call for me. My personal, my personal view is such, right? I'm not trying to cast judgment on them. I'm saying that this is what it looks like from my eyes and from being in ministry and pastoral ministry. Um, from everybody that I learned from, people were always first. When you received the tithe or when you took the tithe, that means you watch what you, like, 
You watch what movies you go to. That's the tithe money paying for your movie. You watch what you do. That's the tithe money that people trusted that you're going to be the man of God. That God is trusting you. He's put you in the position to receive something like that. You know? And so to me, it seems like that, that, that's there. The tithe money exists to help the church. That's not the pastor. That's the church. The church is the people. All of it. All of it. Including the pastor. All of them, though. All of them, right? So I... This is where I get a little twisted. And I'm just being upfront about that. Again, it's, it's, it's something you're going to have to flesh out. You are going to have to have. And, and I'm not going to have, like, you're not going to see me judge a church if they're doing it. I might not agree with it. It might not be a practice I follow. But ultimately, I'm not the one who, like, knows hearts, whether they're uh, uh, with, withholding or, with, or keeping anybody. Because I think ultimately that's the big intention. Are they keeping anybody from worship? Is it a hindrance to anybody? You know? These are, things, these are things you should ask your question. When we're looking here, what cleanses the temple? What cleanses the temple, right? I'd love to tell you there's some black and white in those areas, but it's just not true. It's not. I think there are some churches that are just like these men in the temple in the days of Jesus. I believe that the, uh, they, they think or they believe they're providing a service that's enriching another person's life. But in the end, they might just be actually uh, a hindrance. Say, for instance, we were talking about this last night. I'm going to bring it up. Yeah. Uh, uh, where we were talking about the money exchanges and, and, and ultimately what is happening is this keeping us from the worship of God, right? Uh, there a conference where somebody uh, was teaching on, if you come to this conference, if you pay to come to this conference, we're going to teach you how to pray the prayers that heal people. Well, wait a minute, so I can only do that if I pay money for it, right? I mean, and, and what brought that up is Joy's devotion through uh, the book of Acts where it talked about Simon the magician. He wanted the same thing when he saw the power of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He says, hey man, you know how much money we can make off that thing? And honestly, there's a lot of churches that flirt with that today. And they do it, I think, innocently, not realizing what they're saying. Right? Well, it's going to do all these people really good. I, I, the, the free gift of God is free. And when we charge for it, we take dangerous precautions. This is the stuff that makes Jesus angry. This is the stuff where, like, read, read what they said to Simon. By the way, Jesus is a lot nicer than like Peter. Somebody lied to Peter. They died. That's a New Testament church. That's not Old Testament. That's New Testament. He, he told Simon the magician. He told him some pretty ugly language there too. I mean, this is not Old Testament. This is New Testament. So God cares about this stuff. He really does. I mean, to the point this is the kind of stuff that makes God angry. That's what we're talking about here. That's why we're treading lightly. That's why I'm not saying, hey, this is bad or this is good. I'm treading lightly here because this is the stuff that makes God angry. And I don't want to be on that side. I don't want to be falsely accusing anybody. We have to be careful of these things. By extorting these, these people in, 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 in Mark there, um, these businessmen were keeping people from coming to the Lord and receiving forgiveness. It's like being a distraction before the altar. Remember when Jesus said all around the children, he looked at me and says, leave these children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. By the way, how many of you would like it if somebody kept their, your child from you? By the way, I've had some of those moments with our school, which I had to go in the next week and buy coffee and donuts for all of them and apologize for my behavior. Because when I ask for my child, I want my child. Right? Oh, come on, man. That's all of you. You got kids, you know. 
You know, right? Listen, Jesus is the same way. He's a father too. You're his kids. He gets upset when people don't allow or, or become hindrances that keep you from him, right? When we come to him, it's called worship. And anything standing in the way of our worship makes Jesus angry. Angry. I'm going to share with you a little bit of godly advice. Just, just godly advice real quick and then we'll move on. There's nothing that should keep you from Jesus. Nothing. All right? There is no book, no book that you will need that will get you any closer to Jesus than the Bible. Come on now. We are saturated with books today, but I'm telling you, I still read the books from yesterday because I've yet to learn everything they knew. I always think it's funny every time I see a 20-year-old write a book. I used to be one of those arrogant 20-year-olds, so that's what's weird now. You know, at 40, I'm going, man, when I see a book and they're like, they're trying to promote their little book, the little youth pastor, and he's trying to tell about something theological. I'm like, what do you even know theologically? You don't even know how to raise a kid yet. What do you know? I mean... Unless the grace of God somehow bestowed some wisdom on you that I am not aware of. I mean, looking at your social media page, it still looks like you're a kid. All right? I'm not sure how much I can learn from you in skinny jeans. All right? Still struggling with the whole manhood thing. You know? I mean, like, these are the, I'm just being honest, right? Right? There's no book that you're going to need that's ever going to be better than the Bible. There's no Bible study that you're ever going to need that's ever going to be better than the Bible. There's never one. It's amazing to me how many Bible stories I tell, and people have never heard of them. They've been in the church their whole life. And they're still buying books from Mardell's. Well, you've, you've yet to read the book. Just being honest. The power of God is found in the Bible, in the Word of God. And listen, <laughs> oh, i got to stop. So, some books are going to give you great, like, awesome insights. You will never, you will never be as close to Jesus as when you're in prayer. <laughs> prayer is the ultimate. There is no band. There is no singer. There is no worship conference. There's no pastor that will ever heighten your experience and encounter with Jesus than what prayer will do. I mean, it's just a few tiny little things in the discipleship bag. Prayer and reading the word is enough to take you as far as you want to go. I'm convinced that the man or woman who is locked up with Jesus in prayer is someone who has no need of anything else. Right? They have all they need in him. You can continue to eat the crumbs of other men and women, or you can, you can make your own plate. I'm telling you that just as, as a pastor and as your friend, some of the best stuff you're ever going to find is sitting right there waiting for you to read it in the Bible. And, and you know the, the beautiful thing what happens there is when you have that rhema encounter that happens in the Bible, that is God and you coming together and God saying, let me open your eyes just a little. Let me show you something you've never seen before. Then you're having this intimacy with the Lord. Jesus freely gives to all who seek and to all who seek him find him. This doesn't stop me from reading books. Or listening to an occasional worship song. But prayer roots me in Jesus above the need for anything else. And I have moved from wanting to read about him and singing about him. To wanting to know him and singing to him. And that's just a little bit of advice there. 
take that or leave it, but I'm telling you, everything you need. You do not need me preaching to you every Sunday because the greatest sermons ever are right here. They're waiting for you to dig it out. You know why people think that I might be smart at the word or something? Just because I spend time doing this so I can talk to you about it. But you don't think I do that to everybody else, too, that's not here? I tell so many Bible. I was telling Bible stories at work the other day to guys that said they've been in church for 20 years. And they never even heard of the stories. I mean, probably ought to go back and read. Like, they're awesome. You know, I was telling a story about Benayan, about Joab, and how awesome that thing was. And was telling stories about how the kings back in the days and how the genealogy and stuff lined up and everything. And they're like, man, that's awesome. Like, like I should probably come and listen to you. Or you could read it. I mean, next hotel you go to, open up the drawer. It's right there. It's free. Most churches will have, usually hand them out, man. You can have one. It's the best book ever. It's still selling out. I'm on all the time. <laughs> and we've even dumbed it down so anybody can read it. <laughs> Come on, that's what all them translations are for. Now, I grew up reading the King James, and I am a huge King James fan. And yeah, I've moved on to like the New Living, and I've read the NIV, and I've read a, a lot of different translations, and some I like more than the others, and I think so, it's okay. But I'm going to tell you so uh, that gives you variety, by the way. Go read the message. I don't know who wrote that, uh, but somebody who um, loves poems or something. I mean, it's the most colorful thing I've ever seen, but there's some cool things in the message. I, wouldn't, I didn't like the whole thing, but uh, it was decent. But there's a ton of translation. When, you get, when you've read one translation, go read another one. I, I challenge you. I challenge you. Let them interpret a Hebrew word differently or a Greek word differently that opens your brain to a whole other way of thinking. You know, um, there's, there's a scripture that I read specifically out of the American Standard Version. Because to read it in the New Living or in the NIV, it just doesn't feel right. Uh, in the NIV or the NLT, they'll say he, he uh, requested or he asked uh, 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 to, what is it? He, he requested or he asked, they, they say it in that realm of, like, of helping those who are in need, right? But in the, in the American Standard Version, it says he pled the cause. The word pled, he, they use that word. And I'm going to tell you, when you read that word as compared to request or ask, pled is like get down on your knees and plead. Changes the whole scripture up, right? So some ways they, and when you go look at the Greek and go, is that right? Come on now. It actually is. They just chose to use that word rather than maybe it's one of these other words. It's still kind of correct. Just like, you know, we use witness, right? We see that even the King James says in Acts 1.8 when it says, and you shall be my witnesses, Right? Right? When the Holy Spirit comes, you shall be my witness. But it's our, it's, it, that actually is the word witness. But if you look up the Greek, the word is martus, where we get our, our root word for martyr. So when you read witness in the book of Acts, you might think different now. When you go back and read one Acts, if it said, hey, uh, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and then you will be my martyrs. But I think we like witness better. I think that's a more pleasing word to add. Right? Remember, who, who had a strong concordance? Amen? Amen. I, st I mean, I still have my stuff, man. Strong's concordance. You look up some of those Hebrew words. There's like a whole uh, thing to be found in there. But Brooks is um, the guy, my boss, who I work for. His favorite thing to do is come in Friday mornings and Saturday mornings and try to school me in Hebrew and Greek. Man, I looked up the Greek word. It had these four different definitions. Da, da, da. Man, look at what this one does. And da, da. Oh, my gosh, you stay busy. I mean, dead languages, you who study dead languages, you know, but there is so much to find. And he, he has found a treasure 
of things just in looking at words that are not, they're not done justice. There's so much there for you. There's so much there for you. Listen, let me get back on track. Jesus cares about us to the point that he is angered with anything and anyone that gets in the way of us coming to him. He cares about our worship to the point of making sure, excuse me, to the, to the point of making sure that our lives are void of distraction. You ever, you ever wonder why you have so much time on your, your phone? You think maybe it's because Jesus actually gave you time? Now, you chose to use it on your phone, but you think Jesus actually gave you time? Unfortunately, today, we've become a little bit enamored with being entertained. <clears throat> Listen, if it's not the phone, it's the TV, it's the cable, it's the show, it's whatever. It's whatever. In my house, it's Netflix. And now Hulu. And now Hulu. Yeah. You got teenagers, you already know. Young adults, all that. Right? Right? The only... Uh, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's one or two things. All that time you spend entertained, you could have just been sitting there praying and reading your Bible. You could know more. You could think, no, not just know a little bit more about the Bible or about Jesus. You could be empowered by the Holy Spirit, be empowered by the Word of God, be empowered by your relationship with Jesus. The only difference between yesterday's generation and today's generation is the amount of time we give to entertainment. It's really truth, man, which has become the great distractor in our life. It's distracting us from living our life to the fullest because the full life is one that's invested into the things of God. Truth. It's ironic to me in this day and age when we talk about all these deadly diseases causing zombie-like infections uh, when it's really uh, actually been technology that has ripped us apart. It's distracted us. Man, it has entertained us into a coma. The church is asleep. She's asleep because she's been sung to forever. By TV, by cable, by shows, right? It's time to get off the phone, get off the TV, and be in our Bibles. It just is. Turn off the news in the morning or put down that paper if you actually still read one and pray as if your family depends on it. Jesus doesn't like anything that distracts us or keeps us from forgiveness, for, from his love, from his care, from his power. These are the things that angered him, things that get in between us. God is a jealous God. He does not like things that get between him and his kids. He wants you to come to him, come to Jesus. Do not be hindered, right? I promise you he will help you. He will help you. Jesus wants you to come to him. He wants you to have this unhindered worship, this intimacy with him. After all, he calls his house the house of prayer. Can that be said of you? And if not, why not? Because let me also say, it's never too late. He started in the first of his ministry. Guess what happened at the back end of his ministry? It was still there. So what did he do again? He cleansed the temple again. Jesus is always going to be there to cleanse the temple again. He's always going to be there. Lord, forgive me. Help me start over. And he'll be like, let's go. There's no guilt. There's no condemnation in that. You can just start over. The only guilt or condemnation is the one you self-inflict yourself with. That's probably the greatest tool of the devil, and you give it to him. You give it to him. He just plays on what the guilt you already feel. Because you know you've done Jesus wrong, but here's the thing is, Jesus loves you. There's no accusation he is ever going to say. 
that's going to put you down. He freely receives. All you got to do is go. And listen, it's, this, this is hard stuff when we start to talk about this. When we start to change things, right? When we start to challenge the distractions that are happening that keep us between, right? Uh, uh, as with anything, when you begin to challenge these things, when you begin to challenge the status quo, when I speak out against the phone, when I speak out against entertainment, if I speak out against anything, right? There's going to be consequences, right? I mean, even in church, you should respect a response for the things that you're going to say. When I sat under the Assembly of God banner, I would ask a lot of questions. A lot. And that got me in a lot of fire. A lot. A lot. They weren't questions necessarily challenging leadership. They were really just questions of why do we do what we do? Why is the church this way? I mean, you've been doing it for 30 years. What's your take on that? Well, it's what we've always done. It's a pat answer. I mean, those are the kind of questions I would ask, right? And even those kinds of questions angered a lot of pastors. It's as if by asking those questions, you're almost demeaning their life's work or whatever, but I'm not trying to do that. I just don't understand because statistically, all churches believe this, that Christianity is dying. We see the morality of Christianity dying in the, in the culture. There's no doubt about it. We're entering crisis mode in the church, but I don't ever see anybody in crisis mode. So these, like, these are the questions that I have. Like, if the, if the church really is in crisis mode, and judging by our world right now, the acceptance of homosexuality like it is, uh, 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 abortion being what it is, uh, a popular thing, and feminist movement being strong right now, uh, our culture being torn apart and ripped apart politically right now, uh, race wars being incited once more right now, and uh, watching it, you know, our Christian influence drift away, I don't see anybody acting like it's probably a big deal. We should probably do something about it. I, I just seen them doing the same old things. They show up on Sunday. They got their little outreach. They're helping. The, I mean, and that's it. Like it's, it's, they do church just like it was done 20 years ago as if nothing in the world has changed. And I just don't know how you can. I, at some, I think God's called us to be salt and light. Why is the light diminishing? I'm, I see we got people full up in our churches. What do we have full up in our churches? What kind of people? Are they more lost people than they are saved? Are we tricking ourselves to thinking lost people are saved? I'm just, these are questions I have. This is the stuff that people don't like you to ask. There's, there's consequences to these things, right? When you challenge the status quo, there's consequences. Because these things, when you ask questions, they challenge the comfort of the way things have been done. And the way things have been accepted. And as Jesus challenged the ethics and morality and spirituality of the leadership of his day, their response, though, was a little bit more sinister than what you might find today. They began planning on how to kill him. Now, I can honestly say, out of every question I've ever asked, I have never thought a pastor wanted to kill me. Might not have liked me. Might not have agreed with me. But I never felt like, this dude's about to pull a gun. I never thought that. They might have wanted to go away. They might have wanted me to quit or leave them alone. But I never got that impression they wanted me dead. And honestly, this type of, uh, of, uh, <laughs> this type of behavior shouldn't be in any person that ascribes themselves to God. Yet we see it in the priests and teachers of Jesus' days. Well, if we don't like what they're saying, we'll just kill them. By the way, that's mob stuff. 
right? And with, Jesus, uh, and with Jesus, he just leaves the city, but really this is only the beginning of the end. As we know, it's coming. We know it's coming. Now begins the plan and the plot to kill him. To turn the praise of the people into the people that will kill God. And this is what's about to happen. So this is a very strange time to walk in there and, and confront all this uh, as it begins this whole process. And so Jesus, at this point, he's going to head back towards Bethany. It's getting rough in there. He just got angry. He made everybody who was in leadership angry. All the pastors that were leading the church at that time, they are angry. They had set all this up. They thought they were doing the people a favor. They were doing themselves a little bit of a favor, too. Jesus sees right through it all. And as they're walking through, you know, on their way back to Bethany, they see the same fig tree that he'd cursed the day before. Now, Peter gets excited, right, because he sees the fig tree. It's already withering up from the roots up, right? So now their whole attention's over there, right, because Peter's like, look. I mean, he's, like, amazed by it. And uh, the tree's just withering up. And Jesus takes this opportunity to teach one last lesson, right, before the, you know, before the day's over. You know, and I love how Jesus just turns it off. Like, that was that. But this is now, right? Being in the moment. Remember we talked about that? Being in the moment. Jesus in the moment. They're, they're, their attention's already away from Jerusalem. Now it's on this fig tree. All right, what else can I teach them? What else can I teach them? Isn't this the glory of Jesus? Even a withering old fig tree, he's got a lesson for. All right? And so this is uh, what he ends up saying. I'm just going to, I've already, you know, read it to you but i'm gonna read again he says have faith in god i tell you the truth you can say to this mountain may you be lifted up and thrown into the sea and it will happen but you must really believe it will happen and have no doubt in your heart i tell you you can pray for anything and if you believe that you've received it it will be yours but when you're praying first forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against so that your father in heaven will forgive your sins too now this is where there can be some confusion because I will hear people uh, from time to time, especially in the Pentecostal realm, who love to quote that part about you can pray for anything. And if you believe that, then you receive it. It will be yours. And while, yes, Jesus said this, there's still some contingencies in what you can pray for. After all, he followed up that statement immediately by making it mandatory to pray that you're able to forgive others and that your sins may be forgiven, as if that's some kind of clause to that. So anything can't be just anything because if you hadn't prayed for forgiveness or that others forgive you, right, then the anything isn't qualified. So there's, there's contingencies already placed upon the word anything. In some translations, they say whatever. Well, what, what is whatever? It's like saying if I say everyone's here and like everybody goes, yeah, everybody's here. So, you know, uh, President Trump's here because we said everybody, right? That's everybody. But no, we know that everybody's not necessarily always everybody, Right? Just in this case, it's the same way. There are contingencies here. A couple of other scriptures I want us to consider when we think about this statement and where the confusion comes. Because if we just look at one statement, by the way, there is no theological pretext that's built around one scripture. None. Anybody that does that is taking it out of context and using it in a wrong way. Jesus had a full ministry where he said multiple things, things which backed up other things. So you can find other texts and other scriptures, if not through him, through those he taught, who will teach you more about what he meant. 
because they knew the man. They knew his ministry up close and personal. If we look at the book of James, he has one of the first things we see when it comes to prayer. James chapter 4, 2 through 3, he says, you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it, right? You don't have it because you haven't prayed for it. He says this, and even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. So not everything you pray for is given to you. And there are times when you pray that it's not given to you because your motives are wrong. Hello, health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. I, you know, one of the big things that flew around there on social media for a while is uh, one of the other wealthy pastors with the, the needing a second airplane. And talking about how he was praising God on a commercial flight, or no, on, a, on a, a private plane, and how he needed this other one now that the other plane had gotten older, so he needed a second private plane. And he goes, man, I was praising God, and God spoke to me in the middle of this deal, and so I stood up, and I was dancing around. He goes, well, you couldn't have done that on a commercial plane. I was like, yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> but you might actually sit next to somebody that needs Jesus. <laughs> I mean, I'll leave that there. Sometimes your motives are wrong. Your motives are wrong. That appeals to people who have nothing. And they exploit the people of God. And they will answer to God. Because if there's anything that makes God angry, if we have talked about it right now, it's charlatans that keep people from worshiping the true God. If James is correct when then sometimes when we're praying for anything, we don't receive what we're praying for because it's selfish. It's not healthy for us. God says no, because you don't need it. It's not what you need, right? So you can pray for anything, but praying for anything doesn't mean you're going to get just that, anything, right? How about 1 John 5, uh, verse 14? And we are confident that he hears us whenever we ask for anything, that pleases him. Other translations will say, according to his will. So now this implies that we can pray for anything and that God actually hears us, but specifically he hears us when it's according to his will, or in this case, when it pleases him. He will perform it or answer it if it's something that is pleasing to him. So anything, once more, is not anything. By this way, uh, uh, basically, if, you're, if it is answered because it's according to his will, to me, this is the, one of the biggest miracles we ever receive, right? The, to me, just my opinion, it's, the healing is not, the physical healing is not the miracle. That's not the miracle, right? When we see those things, they're awesome things. I want to take away from the power of God, right? But this is why the disciples never thought that, you, you ever wonder why they asked, teach us how to pray? Are you kidding me? You saw him bring back people from the dead. You saw him, like, touch people in the eyes with dirt, and they got their sight back. You never thought to ask, like, okay, how do we do that? Like, no, I, it was teach us how to pray. Why? Because I'm telling you, the biggest miracle is when your heart lines up with God's heart. And when those two things collide, right, and a prayer actually gets answered, do you realize that you begin to pray the fervent prayer of the righteous for the, maybe one of the few times in your life? That's a miracle. When our sin-depraved hearts that God has forgiven chooses, man, it aligns with God's heart. That is a miracle. It's the best one, right? It's, it's when we become. We, the, 
The miracle is the fruit of the righteous believer praying to the Lord. It's the fervent prayer of the righteous being, being answered. That the miracle lies in the asking and that our hearts align with. This was God's, God's will was to heal. I prayed because I felt that it was God's will was to heal, and my will lined up with his will. First miracle, second miracle is the fruit of that prayer. Amazing. And Jesus doesn't stop here, but he furthers the thought by applying belief to prayer. You, you can and should have faith. This faith will cause you to pray for things, righteous things, things that please God, things that specifically align to God's will, and you must believe that you've received it. So faith makes its request, God performs it, and belief secures it. That's how it works. Your part after the prayer is to believe that God has done his part. This is why Jesus said, you know, at, at the end, nevertheless, thy will be done, right? Because there's times where we don't know. What I do believe is that God's will will be done. I can believe that. I can stand on that no matter what. You know what that does? That resolutes in my heart whether this, if I was outside of the will of God, I submit myself now to the will of God. So it's okay, by the way, to pray for somebody's healing. It's okay, by the way, to pray for things that you believe. I, listen, I get it. Jesus gets it. Your heart can be swept in times. You won't see, like if somebody goes through sickness or somebody goes through a hardship in their life, you might not ever see the future of the outcome of that hardship. That might be what's best for them. There are some people that have gone through such hardships, but that's their testimony and lives were radically changed because they went through it. Hello, Joseph. I mean, read that story. That one's in the Bible. If he hadn't have gone through what he went through, there'd be no Egypt, and there'd be no Judah, and there'd, there'd be no King David, and there'd be no children of Israel. Couldn't be any other way. You can pray all you want, but ain't nobody rescuing Joseph. Joseph was right where he was supposed to be. And sometimes, man, that's when we go. Nevertheless, thy will be done. I don't see all things, God. I don't understand all things. I don't see all things. I submit to it first and foremost. Faith makes your quest. God performs it and belief secures it. To believe really in some ways is to be stoic about your faith. I am absolutely positively assured. Right? Even if you never see it. Even if you never see it. All right? It's to be found like the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11 where they believed in the promise according to the word that God had given them. All the way to their deathbed, never seeing it. But they believed it. They weren't considered foolish. Though they'd never seen the fruit of what God had promised them. They were actually seen, and God made sure they were recorded as heroes for being the bedrock and the standard by which generations will be measured. God didn't forget them. Matter of fact, when he goes through all the names, and everybody would think it'd be cool to have my name right there in the Bible. By the way, there goes good and bad for a lot. But there's a lot of names in Hebrews 11, right? And when he gets down to the end, it seems like such a small bit where he says about those who, who, who were you know, killed or those who went to their death. You know, never seeing the promise, but believed all the way to the end. And you know what it actually says about them? Even though it gives all this list of great men and women, right? All these great people. It says about them, these people were too good for this world. And by the way, because you know why? God loves the nobodies. 
I used to get really frustrated and upset with Elijah, always complaining about he was the only one. Man, I, cause, and never because of the other 7,000, but like it was because of the, you know, the guy in the cave. Like, dude, I'm right here. He had a guy actually with him in the cave. And yet those 7,000, he didn't know who they were because they weren't speaking up. God did. They had spoke up somewhere. I'm thinking in prayer. God knew who were his. Every one of them. He knew them every number. He knew them. He counted them. He knew exactly how many. Because he cares for the nobodies. Because it's the nobodies. Those 7,000, they're the ones praying in on Elijah. You can't have the Elijah without the 7,000 kneeling down praying for God to send them relief. Takes two. These heroes of Hebrew 11 are the standard by which all generations are measured. And guys, so will you. You're the new measure. You have the opportunity to be that in your household. You have the opportunity to be that to your friends, to your city, and to your country, to the world. Jesus is for you, and he's still actively trying to clean house. Still trying to, like, take away distractions from you so that you'll come to him in worship. He seeks fellowship with you. He wants your will to be aligned with his. He wants you to be the effectual prayer of the righteous. Because what the world needs right now are righteous people praying fervently. And really intercessory (laughs) prayer. Our world is dying. And I don't know if you noticed, but the pace has increased. If there was ever a time to pray for each other in our country, it's right now. I mean, it really is. It really is. We stand on the precipice of our day, all the while God is looking for an Elijah. It's coming. I'm going to tell you, it's coming, right? He's looking for a John the Baptist. He's looking for somebody. He's looking for basically men and women who are ready to be shut up and shut in with him so that he might sweep us into the arms of his son and fix this terrible thing we've done by allowing it to happen. We haven't preached loud enough. We haven't preached hard enough. We haven't, we haven't had to suffer in so long here in America that we don't even know what persecution is. But it'll get there unless we fight. And we don't fight with the weapons of this world. We ain't no Westboro Baptists. We're not going to hurl accusations and be ugly and mean. By the way, the only time I see Jesus being ugly to mean anybody is in the church. We come with love and forgiveness. And our weapons are not carnal. We fight a spiritual battle. And it only is going to be won with us knowing the word of God and with us praying. Only. Jesus will do his part. He will. He is trying. His, he, trying. Jesus will remove the distractions. He's only going to tolerate it so much in your life. What will happen is something bad will happen in your life. And you'll find your way right back into all of a sudden you got time. And you'll find Jesus in a way you've never known him before. Because he'll be there. And it won't be his fault. You did that. You chose things over him. You have, by the way, man, uh, you know, I, I pretty much know everybody in the room here. We're pretty, everybody here pretty much knows Jesus. So I'm going to tell you straight up, who the sun sets free is free. You are free to take your time now and do how you like with it. If you choose to let the sinful flesh control you, that's your choice now. Jesus has freed you from that. You have options. 
where you didn't have options before because you were all flesh and all sin and the depraved nature of yourself, you now have options. You are free. You can choose to walk back into sin, and you can choose to walk towards Jesus. What you do now with your choices, that's up to you. By the way, this is why Paul said, I just opt to change slavery from one house to the other. It's easy for me if I just become a slave to Christ. If you give me too many choices, I'm probably going to choose bad. I'll fall right back into legalism. I'll fall right back into all these things. So you know what? I am no longer a free man. I call myself what? The bondservant. Praise God for the King James there. A bondservant of Jesus Christ. I am not a slave to sin anymore. I'm still a slave though. Now I'm just a slave to righteousness. I I forego my free will. Give it back to the Lord because he knows what's best for me. Awesome concept. Jesus goes, that's up to you. And the neat thing is he doesn't treat us like that. He could, but he doesn't. He calls us friend. He calls us friend. If that doesn't make us hungry, I don't know what does, man. That should make you hungry for a relationship with him. He's wonderful like that. The whole gospel is such this beautiful thing. Just like this, it's just beautiful. So as we get ready to do worship this morning, I, I promise you, Jesus is already here. And he's already trying to navigate through all the distractions. And for me, it's hungry, like every day. Right? Which is making me emotional, which irritates me. Right? Jesus is fighting through that, right? Now, the more I talk about it, the more I speak about it, the more, like, filled up I get. Right? There's an addictiveness to preaching. And it's not just so I can be in front of you. It's because when I talk about Jesus, I get excited. It, like, fuels me like adrenaline. When I tell him about, when I just talk to somebody on the streets and I begin to tell them all these stories, and they're like, man, I never heard all these stories. Like, I just want to keep telling you more because it's so fascinating. It's so awesome. Everything I read about Jesus is amazing. Love to tell you about it. Let me tell you some more. It, it fuels me too. God fills me up. So when we get to worship, I promise you, he's trying to knock out all that distraction. Where are you going to lunch, man? Throw that away for a second. And, 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 and be intimate. Right? Be intimate. Think about, think about it. Amen? Amen. Let's, let's worship a little bit this morning.